been talking about how easy it is for people to have misunderstandings one with another. More specifically, what we've been talking about these last few weeks is how people over the years have had misunderstandings about churches of Christ. When I think of being misunderstood, I think about an incident I read about involving former President Richard M. Nixon. And it proves that oftentimes people hear you. But at the same time, they don't really hear you. They may have heard what you said, but they didn't really process and didn't really hear what you said. What you might not know, to give you a little background for this story, everybody's familiar with the song, you know, Smokey the Bear, Smokey, you know, heard that. There really was a Smokey Bear. In 1950, there was a fire in the mountains in New Mexico. And while they were on the fire line, there were a group of about 30 firefighters that saw a bear cub that was walking along the fire line that had evidently been left behind by its mother. Well, the fire overtook these firefighters, and they hunkered down, and the fire swept over them, and they were all okay with no injuries, but the bear cub was not so lucky. The bear cub had severe burns on its feet, and its hair and fur was all singed, and they took the little bear cub to a veterinarian and had it treated. And they named the bear cub Smokey. It became Smokey Bear. And they transferred Smokey Bear to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. And Smokey Bear died there in 1976 at the age of 26 years old. And in 1952, the song that we all heard all, all of our all those years, Smokey the Bear, Smokey the Bear, they added the V in there so the song would have the right ring to it and the right rhythm to it. But actually, the name of the bear cub was Smokey. It was Smokey Bear till the day he died. Well, anyway, Smokey is in the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. And at the time President Nixon was greeting all these people, it had been noised around that, that Smokey Bear was ill. And so Nixon's working, as they say, the, the rope line, shaking hands. The president's shaking hands with all these people. And this little girl said, Mr. President, how is Smokey doing? Nixon looked a little puzzled and an aide whispered in his ear and said, Smokey Bear, National Zoo. And the president's face brightened and he looked, stuck out his hand to the little girl and said, And how are you, Miss Bear? People can hear you, but they don't really hear you. We talked in past lessons about how God's people through the years, as we've seen in the Old Testament, restored God's way of doing things. Because you see, sometimes men and women lose sight of God's original plan. We saw in the book of Nehemiah that they were observing the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they looked in the book of the Law of Moses, they discovered that it was commanded that they observe that Feast of tabernacles by living in temporary huts made of branches and they discovered that for a thousand years since the days of Joshua 
They had not been observing the Feast of Tabernacles according to God's plan. And so they restored God's original way of doing things. And then we looked last Lord's Day at an example in 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's, you recall, where David made preparations to return the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And when Uzzah was struck dead for touching the Ark, David did some research. And he found out that God had prescribed a specific way for the ark to be moved and transported. And they weren't doing it that way. And when they restored God's original way of moving and transporting the ark, the move went smoothly. You see, though we in churches of Christ are often misunderstood, that's really all we're trying to do. Is take the Bible... And look at the way things were done in the first century. Back in the days when Paul was preaching and the New Testament was being written. Those days when you could have gone to Ephesus and heard Paul preach, or you could have been in Corinth and Paul would have stood up to preach. All we're trying to do is to restore things to the very best of our ability and understanding the way they were in that far off day and time. We talked briefly last Lord's Day about patterns and patterns that exist in the New Testament. Patterns for doing things the way the Lord wants them to be done. I never tried to sew anything together. I sat though for many hours as a small boy and watched my grandmother sit at her sewing machine. And I watched her make lots of clothes for my mother. And I can remember how many times that as a child I would go to the fabric store with mother and grandmother and would be literally bored out of my skull while they looked at all those butterick patterns in the pattern book. Anybody else ever done that? And then they'd start looking through to find the pattern. And they'd buy it. And they, had, they would take it home and cut out the pattern and lay it on the fabric and cut out the fabric. What do you think would have happened if they'd have tried to make that dress without a pattern? Somebody said one time a camel was a horse designed by a committee. I'm not sure a camel wasn't a horse made without a pattern. They had to have a pattern to sew, to make those dresses. All over Marshall, Texas, you'll find pattern shops. Not so many as before, but in the days when Smith Steel Casting Company was in business there. And they made cast metal products primarily for the oil industry. There were pattern shops that would first make those fittings and those pipes and those vows, they would make them out of wood. And then they would cast them into sand. So they would have a mold to pour the hot metal into. But they first made a pattern for what that valve or that pipe was going to look like. This book 
contains a pattern. A pattern of the way that God wants things to be done. A pattern for us doing the things the Lord wants us to do. Patterns for molding the church and patterns for molding our worship into the kind of worship God wants it to be. And that's what I want us to talk about just for a few minutes this morning, is I want us to continue to talk about patterns that exist in the New Testament. Because we believe that the New Testament contains a pattern for salvation and a pattern for church membership. Now, for a little background, I want us to go to the city of Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Dr. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 that dwelling in Jerusalem were devout men, Jews, from every nation under heaven. And it was on that day that the apostles stood up and began to speak in other tongues to that audience. And Dr. Luke tells us that each man understood in his own language. And what they were doing that day on Pentecost as they were speaking in tongues, that was totally different from, from what happens today when men speak in tongues. But that's another lesson for another day. But remember what I said. It tells us in Acts 2 there were men there from every nation under heaven. And it lists all of them by, by name. I'm not going to read them, but they're there. And it says that each man listening understood in his own language what was being said. Well, some folks in the audience that day began mocking and said, these folks are, these guys are drunk on a bunch of new wine. But Peter stood up and told the audience, he said, listen to me. King James says, it says he said, hearken to my voice. I mean, y'all listen to what I'm fixing to tell you. And so what Peter did was he explained, these men are not drunk on new wine like you think they are. That's what the mockers and the scoffers wanted to say. Peter said, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And he quoted a prophecy from the second chapter of the prophet Joel, verses 28 through 32. And Peter was doing that day what Jesus had given him the authority to do in Matthew 16. You remember they were on that retreat near Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus had asked the apostles, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say thou art Elias. Some say Jeremiah, so one of the prophets. Well, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee. My Father which is in heaven, you're Peter. I'm going to give to you, Jesus said, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He was giving Peter the authority to preach the first sermon in this new kingdom. And that's what Peter's doing. That's exactly what Peter's doing in Acts chapter 2. And Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, Jesus said, has already been loosed in heaven. So Peter preached. And he preached a powerful sermon that day. And one of the things he told them was about how much David was respected. But, but our father David is dead and buried and his grave still with us. But Jesus was buried 
And three days later, he rose from that grave, and then he tells him, he brings that sermon to a close. And he looks at that audience, and he says, God hath this same Jesus you have crucified. God has made both Lord and Christ. And it says when they heard that, it cut them to the heart in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. It said they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, He testified and exhorted, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received His word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. If you skip down to the last verse of that second chapter, Dr. Luke closes that chapter with this announcement. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now all of that, brings us some questions for consideration. It says, They that gladly received His Word were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. What conditions? What conditions did those 3,000 converts on Pentecost have to meet? You remember Acts chapter 2 starts with 120 disciples meeting in an upper room. And it closes and the number is 3,120 plus. What did those 3,000 have to do before God saved their souls and added them to the church? And in the days that followed Pentecost, what conditions did those people have to meet before God saved their souls and God added them to the church. In the 21st century, today, 2,000 years later, what do we have to do for God to save us and add us to the church as we read about in Acts 2? The answer to those questions reveals some differences and some significant differences you'll find in Churches of Christ and many other evangelical church groups. It's not the only difference, but it is the most important difference. What did they have to do, is the question. Our answer begins with this, a confessed belief. Before the Lord will save us and add us to the church, 
We believe the Bible teaches that we must be totally convinced of some fundamental truths. We must believe that our sins have placed us under the wrath of the God of heaven. We must believe and realize our destiny as sinners is an eternal separation from God. But we need to realize something else, and this is very important. That in spite of our sin, and in spite of transgression, and in spite of wrongdoing, God still loves us. God still loves me, and He still loves you. And God loves us so much that He does not want any of us to spend eternity separated from Him. But we have to come to a realization that God and God alone can change that lost and separated condition and that I am completely powerless to save myself. And it's imperative that we understand that God can save us because God punished Jesus in our place. And sometimes we need to internalize that and personalize that. God can save me because God punished Jesus in my place. God put all of my sins on Jesus. And God poured on Jesus all the holy wrath that my sin deserves by nailing Jesus to the cross. He died as a substitute there for me and for you. And after Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for us, His body was taken down and buried. But three days later, by the power of God, Jesus came back. But there must be more in our hearts than just a mental assent to the fact that these historical facts are true. We must be willing to confess verbally Our conviction that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And quite honestly, that part of our salvation does not distinguish churches of Christ from any other evangelical group in this world. So what distinguishes us or what's different or what's misunderstood about us and other evangelical groups? There's got to be more to our answer than just salvation involves a verbally confessed conviction about the nature and the work of Jesus. Well, if we want God to save us, and if we want God to add us to the church like we read about in Acts 2, verse 47, there's more we have to do. The Bible, we believe, firmly teaches we have to stop living in sin. That our stubborn will, my stubborn will, has to be yielded to the will of God. 
And the Bible calls that repentance. But guess what? That doesn't really distinguish us from most other evangelicals either. Most all evangelical groups today teach that, and they believe, they teach and they believe that repentance is something that's necessary for salvation. So then there has to be more to our answer, doesn't there? You see, in addition to a confessed belief in Christ, and in addition to a repentance and turning our back upon sin, we also believe that God has mandated baptism as a condition for receiving salvation and being added to the church. With a heart full of faith in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, And with a firm commitment to live life God's way. We believe that God forgives our sins, gives us the Holy Spirit, and adds us to the church the moment we're baptized into the death of Christ. And we're buried with Christ in baptism. We're raised then in the likeness of His resurrection. You see, baptism then, in other words... It completes our response of saving faith. Our full and final salvation begins with a confessed belief. It continues with repentance and is completed then in baptism. And this, folks, is where the road forks. Because in churches of Christ, we passionately embrace baptism as a necessary condition for salvation and a necessary condition for membership in the body of Christ. And many, most of our evangelical neighbors, just as passionately, reject the concept that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's one of the critical elements of the teaching, though, of the New Testament. You can watch the people on TV, or you can go to certain rallies. You can actually get tracts that people will give you. That all you have to do to be saved If you'll just lift your hand where you are and pray this prayer with me, God will save you. And I want to ask a question. On Pentecost, when those people heard that, when Peter said, this same Jesus you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they heard this, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, if you'll lift your hand with mine and pray this prayer, you'll be saved, did he? He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. 
It says they baptized 3,000 people that day. You ever thought about the logistics of that? Baptizing 3,000 people? It would have been a lot easier just to have everybody raise their hand and pray a prayer, wouldn't it? But Jesus says, Peter, whatever you bind on earth, whatever terms you set, those terms have already been set in heaven. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Do you notice there how Peter in that passage joins repentance and baptism together? And do you recall how it says, they that gladly received His Word were baptized. And look at how Jesus joins the two together in Mark 16, 15 and 16. When Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. If God in His Word has joined baptism and salvation together, and I'm convinced that He has, then we simply cannot, no matter what we might think, no matter what I might think, I cannot allow those two to be separated. I can't even allow them to be separated for a goal as noble and desirable as a closer fellowship with others that seek to honor Jesus as Lord, but don't accept what He has to say there. I want to share with you, and I may go a little longer than I'd normally do this morning, and I'm sorry for that, but this to me is so important. I want to share with you what to me is one of the most terrifying passages in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. You notice, if you were in class this morning, you notice I went ahead and told you where it was, so that if you want to check me on it, you can. Jesus is preaching His Sermon on the Mount here. And He's bringing it to a close. And it's very early in His ministry. Jesus says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name we've done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never from the time I was a little boy and that's been a while even till today those words give me chills and those words make the hair on the back of my neck stand up not everyone that calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. With those words in those verses, 
Jesus makes it impossibly clear that people can actually believe they're saved and in reality be lost. People who genuinely believe that He is their Lord. People that actively serve Him and promote His cause. And that's scary. In my humble opinion, and and remember, I've said this so many times, I'm not some well-learned Bible scholar. I'm just a simple country preacher. But in my humble opinion, those are words that ought to be enough to make anyone want to revisit their salvation while they're still breathing. Stay with me. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should, I'm not suggesting we should walk around every day with a big question mark dogging us constantly about our salvation. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that what Jesus says there definitely suggests we should not take salvation for granted. Why did Jesus say what He said? He said, many. That's Jesus' word, not mine. He said, many who acknowledge Him and serve Him as Lord will be lost on the day of judgment. Why? It's a one-word answer. Disobedience. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to enter it, Lord? He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And Jesus follows up that attention-grabbing announcement with an exhortation to take obedience to God as a subject to be taken very seriously. And He gives us the story of the wise and foolish builders. He says, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, this is verse 24, Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat upon that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. And then Matthew gives us the reaction of the people. When Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. God requires obedience. That's one of the things we learn from studying the Bible. A quick example, when the Israelites were given the promised land and they went into the land of Canaan, what were they told to do? The city of Jericho was fortified. 
God said, march around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you march around the city seven times. Blow the trumpets. Give a great shout and the walls of the city will fall down. What would have happened if they had only marched around the city six times instead of seven? Well, the walls wouldn't have fell. Well, why not? Because they didn't do what God told them to do. Or maybe a lesser known example over in 2 Kings chapter 5. General Naaman, military officer, had leprosy. Oh, he had leprosy so bad. And he went to see God's man, the prophet. And he went to Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger down and said, Go dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be cleansed. Well, of course, that incensed Naaman because the prophet didn't even have enough respect for his rank as a general to come to himself and send a servant down. And he said, the Jordan River is nasty and dirty, and we've got clear waters here, the Abana and Farfar and Damascus. Why should I go dip in the Jordan River? And he didn't do it. Guess what? He still had his leprosy. little servant girl says, my father, if the prophet had bid you do some great thing, you'd have done it. Why not wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went to the Jordan River, and he dipped seven times in the Jordan River, and his leprosy was cleansed. What if Naaman had only dipped five times? He said, that's enough of this. Would he have done what God said? Would he have been cleansed of his leprosy? The clear implication in the story of the fall of Jericho and the story of Naaman is they had to meet the conditions God set down and God attached to His promise. God has promised me He's going to save my soul. But it comes with conditions attached. God promised to save me. With the blood of Jesus. But that promise comes with conditions attached. In this book, this book right here, God made baptism one of those conditions. And to be sure, no one has the authority to dismiss that for any reason. Something I believe, I firmly believe it. And since God has attached it firmly to His promise of salvation, I can't dismiss it. I can't dismiss it any more than Israel could have dismissed those seven times on that seventh day. Or Naaman could have dismissed the conditions God attached to His promise. Here's the question. Have you ever submitted your stubborn will to the will of God? If you've never done that, I would beg you to do that. Submit your will to the will of God. Make Jesus Christ Lord and Master of your life. Or maybe you've done that. And somewhere along the way you haven't lived God's kind of life and haven't lived it God's way and you need to come back home. If we can help you obey God, if we can help you in your walk with Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity to come as we stand and while we sing.